Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is Eat Sleep Work Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley. It's a podcast about making work better. Lovely response to the last few episodes. There was an episode with Cal Newport questioning the relationships we have with our screens. There's a previous episode that was really good, just looking at the latest bits of research into things like loneliness and the evidence of working long hours. I've been subjected to a terrible roof leak in the intervening time. Water pouring onto my bed at night. Last night, water pouring into my toilet. You know, so you wake up and you've got like this this noise in the back of your head and it's of water gushing. Uh, not a nice thing. Annoyingly, the people have said that they can't come round and fix the leak till it stops raining. So every time it rains this week, think of me, water gradually gushing onto my face, onto my weary, weary face. Right, I'm buzzing about this episode. Now, my book, The Joy of Work, is about work culture. But because it starts with these 12 personal interventions, a lot of the coverage and comments have focused on that. And I think that's because, you know, it's like none of us really finish books. We certainly don't make much progress in them. And so that's the bit that people have read in the book. And the reason why I put those personal interventions in is because I'm convinced you can't fix work culture till you've made people feel more alive and, and less exhausted by their jobs. So I love that stuff. Uh, I think you'll genuinely laugh at that. But my favourite part of the book is when I got into the science of better team working and better team cultures. And it's about 100 pages in. And I know it's like I should have just maybe I should have put that at the start of the book, but it, it sort of works better as it is. So I'm thrilled today to be able to share with you the audiobook version of some of that. So I'm delighted that Audible and Penguin Random House have teamed up to give me the audio of the start of the sync section of The Joy of Work. If you like what you hear, click on the notes part of the podcast and you can download the whole thing. I think if you're new to Audible, in fact, your first listen is actually free. So uh, audio, audiobooks really have changed my life. And, and if you like podcasts, but don't listen to audiobooks, then you've got a treat in store for you. Now, the podcast producer was a, a total legend and he made me speak slower and more clearly than I normally speak here. So it's going to be a bit like you've gone on to the sort of serious mode. Hopefully you'll love the content. There's some brilliant stories in it. For me, the, the science involved in the sync part of the book is I, I was just, I, I adored researching it. I adored writing it. I, I, I adore reading it. So here you go. Here's today's episode. It's an extract of the audiobook of The Joy of Work. Part two, sync. Eight fixes to make teams closer. Introduction. 
What a Roman boss taught us about our jobs. It might seem surprising to suggest we can learn much about work from a 13th century Holy Roman Emperor. Frederick II was rather a complicated guy, and I don't think his antics would make him an office favourite today. Although at one level he was highly successful, forging an empire that brought together much of modern Italy, Germany, Austria and the Czech Republic, his aggressive ambitions involved constant warfare and political strife that would make weekly status meetings unnecessarily anxious. Pope Honorius III crowned him Emperor of the Romans. Things soon soured, however, and Honorius's successor, Pope Gregory IX, in a medieval precursor to what today would be an international Twitter spat, ended up describing him as the Antichrist. But it's Frederick's scientific curiosity that makes him worthy of note in a book on modern work. Very unusually, uniquely perhaps, for the period in which he lived, he was a ruler who had a genuine desire to understand the world around him in general, and humans in particular, even if he brought to his study the ethics of a toddler pulling the legs off insects. In one experiment, for example, a man was taken from his family and sealed in a barrel with no food or water, the object being to find out whether his spirit would be visible, leaving a small hole in the barrel at the moment of death. No, it turned out. In what might now be described as a murderous A-B test, two men were given identical evening meals. On finishing them, the first man was invited to go out on a vigorous nighttime hunting expedition. The other encouraged to get a restful night's sleep. When the hunter returned, both men were killed and disemboweled, so Frederick could compare the relative impacts of a good workout and a prolonged rest period on the digestive system. You can imagine that people started to avoid catching Frederick's eye too readily when it looked as though he might be looking for a fresh volunteer. It was his experiments on children that were particularly inhumane. Intent on unearthing the raw native language of humankind, the language we'd speak if we weren't taught one, he took some infants into his care, giving the express instructions to their nurses that they were not to touch or interact with the babies in any way. Showing them love or talking to them was prohibited. The outcome must have come as a surprise and a disappointment to Frederick. Subjected to social neglect, the children did not discover some true atavistic language. Instead, starved of all affection and human engagement, the infants simply died. Because they had no sense that they mattered to others, there was no reason for them to continue living. Frederick had unearthed a fundamental truth. If we don't feel we are loved or belong, we give up. It's a fundamental truth that even today sometimes gets forgotten. Consider Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that famous mid-20th century model that seeks to show how some needs and requirements are contingent on others first being satisfied, certain prerequisites needing to be fulfilled before the next ones can be considered. According to Maslow, the most essential elements of human existence are such physiological requirements as air, water, food, shelter and sleep. Then, following personal safety, come love and belonging, followed by esteem for ourselves and by others. And finally, the overarching, the most elevated need, the need for self-actualization. It's a compelling model, and it's almost universally acclaimed and accepted as a robust guide to human motivation. But it's almost certainly wrong. Think about the babies at Frederick II's court. The Maslow model clearly doesn't explain why infants who were fed and looked after would perish simply because they were deprived of love and affection. 30 years after Maslow, Roy Baumeister and Mark Leary published a widely cited paper that addressed this issue. In their view, Maslow was incorrect 
to suggest that belonging was not much more than a nice-to-have, something that became important only after more fundamental essentials were acquired. Rather, Baumeister and Leary argued, a sense of belonging runs parallel to physiological needs. Humans have always wanted their achievements to be validated, recognised and valued by others. We are not naturally drawn to acting alone. Even a quick glance at research on social behaviour raises the possibility that much of what human beings do is done in the service of belongingness, the researchers stated. If we don't belong, we feel no value. We suggest that belongingness can almost be as compelling a need as food and that human culture is significantly conditioned by the pressure to provide belongingness. We want people to acknowledge us, to warm to us, to see our good deeds. If a charitable donation is given in the forest and no one witnessed it, did it really happen? Baumeister and Leary's findings are backed up by Professor Julianne Holt-Lundstadt's vast study of the medical history of over 3.4 million adults. In her findings, isolation increased a person's risk of premature death by 50%. To put that in context, obesity raised their risk of death by just 30%. Being connected to others socially is widely considered a fundamental human need, crucial to both well-being and survival, she concluded. In other words, being lonely is far worse for us than an unhealthy diet. Any sense that we don't belong damages us every moment of our lives. Frederick II showed that babies cannot survive without attention. Today, teenagers and adults deprived of stable relationships have been shown to suffer higher levels of mental and physical illness. They're more likely to display a range of behavioural problems, from committing more crime to having more car accidents. They're also more prone to suicide. And if that's true of our lives in general, it's also true of that part of our lives that we spend at work. Of course, we need to feel we belong when we're at home but we also need to feel the same way when we're at work. It's essential that we belong amongst the people with whom we spend five days of the week. What does a sense of belonging at work look like? Most people would flinch from applying to our colleagues the words that we use about those close to us, words such as family or love. But the truth is that time and time again, teams report feeling friendship and something close to familial love for one another. In the course of a conversation with a London firefighter, I was struck by his comment that firefighters feel most motivated when they have a shared sense of enjoyment and experience an emotional connection with each other. His outlook was clearly shared by the anonymous London firefighter who asked by the independent what the working culture was like for those who repeatedly risked their lives to fight the savage conflagration at Grenfell Tower, replied, We're a funny bunch. We like to laugh, to play jokes on each other. More of the joy of work after this. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. 
It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Now back to the extract of the joy of work. Sync three. Halve your meetings. It was like a scene out of Prohibition era America. Three office workers, smartly dressed, but not so much that they ran the risk of drawing attention to themselves, eased the door closed behind them. Each furtively took a seat, keeping an ever-watchful eye on the world beyond the glass partition. When you're looking out for law enforcement, you need to be confident your opponent isn't creeping up on you. Then, one of them slowly opened the luminescent device that up till now he'd managed to keep concealed. Finally, the comfort of a well-designed slide and the calm created by the presence of PowerPoint. This is safe. This is normal again, they thought, as they collectively exhaled a sigh of relief. They leant in to gaze at the glowing laptop that sat between them. And then, in that brief moment of absorption, bang, the door flew open. In swarmed the feds. They'd been busted. Office life in the modern age? Well, perhaps not. But this, give or take a touch of licence, was very much the scene at PayPal when its chief operating officer, David Sachs, came on the scene. Striding around an office of 700 people, like a cop sniffing out speakeasies, he would throw open meeting room doors to break up anything that resembled an unnecessary gathering. As a colleague later recounted, Sachs enforced an anti-meeting culture where any meeting that included more than three or four people was deemed suspect and subject to immediate adjournment if he gauged it inefficient. Sachs himself explained that he felt the meeting enthusiast's problem was actually a legacy of a recent acquisition that had left the company with twice as many bosses as were necessary. Managers were holding meetings simply to assert their importance in the new power structure. The PayPal situation may have its peculiar quirks, but what Sachs uncovered was not actually an unusual phenomenon. One of the great challenges of modern office life is finding ways to accurately assess people's capabilities. How do we decide if they're good at their job? You'd think we would try to measure their day-to-day work, their ideas, their ability to operate effectively in a team. In fact, we're just as likely to judge them from their ability to talk or present in meetings, even though there's actually a very limited correlation between meetings and genuine productivity. A get-together to discuss a shared project can at times feel energising and productive. Meetings are, all too often, soul-sapping. Advertising legend Roy Sutherland, for one, is highly sceptical that such lengthy periods spent sitting in a room with others constitute a sensible use of time, and he compares present practice unfavourably with what prevailed in the past. In the old 1980s Adland, he said, there were quite a lot of periods where there wasn't much to do. You put something into the studio and you were waiting for it to come out. The photography had to be done and you were waiting for the first retouching to be done or whatever. All those things created an enforced downtime. The enforced downtime was mostly wasted, as all these things are. But then it was wasted in a way which was a special kind of waste. Okay, 80% of it was wasted, but 20% of it turned out to be really valuable. 
you'd have conversations which otherwise wouldn't have happened. I think we've all got to relearn this stuff, he concludes, because technology and email arrived so fast there was no time for etiquette or practices or behavioural rules to emerge around it. To try and get a handle on just why meetings are so unproductive, it's worth taking a look at some of the most interesting experiments in human dynamics to have been conducted in recent years. The marshmallow appears twice in iconic pieces of scientific research. Perhaps scientists find its squishiness irresistibly compelling. The marshmallow test is possibly the more familiar one. Children left in a room with one marshmallow and told they can eat it now will receive two marshmallows if they're prepared to wait five minutes. Their ability to delay gratification turns out to be a powerful indicator of whether they will achieve later success in life. But it's the similarly titled Marshmallow Challenge that teaches us about power play in meetings. The challenge, which was devised by Palm Pilot designer Peter Skillman as he explored how groups solve problems, is a very simple one to set up. Volunteers are divided into teams, each of which is then given 18 minutes to construct the tallest freestanding structure possible out of 20 pieces of dry spaghetti, a metre of sticky tape, a metre of string and one marshmallow that has to end up sitting at the top of the edifice. It sounds straightforward enough, but Skillman's findings show that different groups of individuals approach the challenge in very different ways and with very different levels of success. Remarkably, the group that consistently performed best for Skillman was made up of preschool aged children. The worst performing, despite their earnest endeavours, were business school students. Psychologist Tom Wujek, who has himself taken on the thought leadership around the challenge, describes what generally happens when teams set about the exercise. Normally, most people begin by orienting themselves to the task. They talk about it. They figure out what it's going to look like. They jockey for power. They spend some time organising. They lay out spaghetti. They spend the majority of time assembling the sticks into ever-growing structures. So far, so familiar. This sounds like the average meeting. Then, finally, just as they are running out of time, someone takes out the marshmallow. They gingerly put it on top. Ta-da! They admire their work. What really happens most of the time is the ta-da turns into uh uh-oh. The weight of the marshmallow causes the structure to buckle and collapse. Just as the clock runs out. So why are preschool-aged children so much better at this challenge, producing not just the most interesting structures, but also the tallest one? In Peter Skillman's words, none of the kids spend time trying to be CEO of Spaghetti Inc. They don't spend time jockeying for power. What they do instead is interact in a frequently non-verbal way. They grab immediately for materials. They try different things out, what Skillman describes as prototyping ideas often not even bothering to find words to describe their actions, and they quickly discover that the cloud-like fluffiness of the marshmallow is nothing of the sort. It's a dense blob of sugar that weighs enough to collapse anything but the sturdy structures. The business school students, by contrast, have not only been schooled to search for the single correct answer, they're also focusing at least some of their energy on asserting their position in the group before their anticipated win. Each student wants to be the genius discoverer of the perfect correct answer, or the leader of the group, or both. Problem solving, therefore, degenerates into a phony war, where what's really at stake is where each combatant sits within the intellectual hierarchy in the group. Business meetings follow much the same pattern. Members of the team may genuinely be trying to solve a problem or assert positions against each other, or both. A colleague of mine encountered a real-life version of the Marshmallow Challenge for herself when she quit a stellar career at Twitter to follow her dream of working 
in an elite restaurant. Enrolled on the internationally esteemed Leith's cooking course, Georgina found that students there are split into three rough groups that largely reflect age. One cohort is made up of school leavers aged 19 or 20. Another comprises 30-somethings. The final one is given over to 40 and 50-somethings. And what my ex-colleagues soon discovered was that the older the group, the longer it takes them to learn. But this wasn't because cognitive ability declines in age. The older groups exhibited just as much of the interest and dedication shown by the youngest class. The problem was that the older groups talk and debate. They discuss and dissect every single thing. Their ability to learn is slowed by members of the group subconsciously asserting their social standing and position. I mentioned earlier that the anthropologist Robin Dunbar had argued that humans are able to form trusting relationships with, at most, 150 people. A theory that's sometimes known as Dunbar's number. Once we reach that limit, 42% of our time is taken up in social grooming, namely building and sustaining trusted relationships with the people we're surrounded with. As I also mentioned earlier when talking about email, meetings play a significant part in this social grooming. We use them to manage our relations with others as we toil away in a complex web of professional relationships. CAS Business School professor Andre Spicer, talking about the perceived need to get employees and companies to connect, explains. Meetings help smooth that. They're a social preening ritual, just like monkeys picking the fleas off each other's backs. The problem is that such meetings might serve a social purpose, but they're deeply unproductive. The conventional objection at this stage would be to say there are good meetings and there are bad meetings, and it's wrong to assume that all are a waste of time, just because some may be. Devotees of such office gatherings often pipe up to say that effectiveness of a meeting can be fixed with a strong agenda and clear objectives. They know this because they wrote it down at business school. Almost without exception, these experts are responsible for running dismally life-sapping meetings themselves, and they ban electronic devices from them by way of petty retribution if they think other attendees are looking disengaged. I've been to enough of these business school-inspired meetings with former management consultants to know it's a lie for them to claim that their meetings are better. What they tend to be is exhaustingly earnest, and as I pointed out earlier, self-regulation can be mentally taxing. In point of fact, regardless of who's in the chair, the evidence for meetings is not encouraging. Ben Wabber from Humanize is emphatic that meetings don't create the kind of cohesion essential to great teams. The results could not have been clearer. Neither formal meetings nor people chatting at their desks encouraged higher cohesion. And Leslie Perlow, trailblazing observer of workplace productivity mentioned earlier, has observed that many of us see meetings as nothing more than a cultural tax on a productive working environment. When workers sacrifice their own time and well-being for meetings, she asserts, they assume they're doing what's best for the business. It's the perfect description of the average meeting. The problem is, if the objective of the next generation of work is to make us more inventive, then a necessary tax on thinking isn't a great place to start. The great curse of meetings is that they tend to take place just when we could be at our most productive and innovative. We give the best time of the day to them, forcing more creative work into our lunch breaks and evenings. We find ourselves making that vital phone call on the journey home or working on that key strategy paper sitting hunched over a laptop at the kitchen table. If you've ever found yourself telling people that you come in early because it's the only time you can get work done, then you know how ultimately draining the experience is. You may yourself be guilty of helping to create the problem. 
Modern work is filled with so many obstacles in the way of us making progress that we often can't help our attention drifting away. Everyone is familiar with that irrelevant 20-minute presentation about someone else's part of the business that we've been forced to sit through. But if we do have to listen to something that doesn't matter to us, to do it once is a kindness. To do it regularly is a burden. That's why even good people like to get their devices out and try to swipe away a few messages when the spotlight isn't on them. The problem is, as I've pointed out elsewhere, lots of forms of behaviour in the office are contagious, particularly if it's the boss who's leading the way. If a boss does electronic multitasking in a meeting, other attendees are 2.2 times more likely to do so as well. And since no one is as good at multitasking as they think they are, nor is multitasking as productive as its adherents would like to believe, it's worth asking the question, what is this meeting achieving if everyone's on their phone? Put very simply, teams should be small and meetings smaller. The objective of a good meeting has to be to get as few people in a room as possible to make a rapid decision and to allow others to be aware of the process that went into making that decision. The radical transparency investment firm Bridgewater Associates records all of its meetings so that everyone can, if they wish, find out what happened without getting in the way by attending. Meetings should also be highly focused. One research paper, for instance, concluded... Teams that showed more functional interaction, such as problem-solving interaction and action planning, were significantly more satisfied with their meetings. A sense of energy and direction definitely helps too. But overall, the best thing we can do is try to halve the amount of time we spend in meetings, reminding ourselves as we do so that they are unproductive social grooming sessions that all too often involve performance rather than high-quality debate. Meeting for a shorter period of time brings focus to our discussions, and an urgency that is too often lost when we slavishly schedule something to last half an hour or an hour. Sometimes find it's worth putting a regular meeting or sync time on the calendar, but standing it down if there's nothing to discuss. Holding the calendar position ensures that everyone is free. Finding that particularly deathly weekly meeting has been cancelled is guaranteed to release a few endorphins. It's something that one huge British utility firm I spoke to told me they were considering trialling. Their idea being people could vote whether there was enough to discuss to make that particular week's catch-up worth holding. The company's ultimate objective is to reduce the time people spend tied up in meetings from several hours a week to just a handful. Of course, if our bosses don't see things that way, there's very little we can do. Proper discussion about the best way to get things done are few and far between. It's nevertheless worth taking it upon yourself to be a gently spoken champion for change. If a discussion can be provoked and furnished with evidence about how reducing meetings might help with getting work done. In my experience, there's a chance to make progress. Sometimes banning PowerPoint can have this effect. When people don't have bulleted text to read, they tend to get their points across in a quicker, more conversational way. The only certainty in life is death and meetings. But be bold. Be the agent of change in your office. What you can do next. Start asking questions. Ask the person who runs the meeting if you could do it in less time. Ask the attendees of your own meetings if you all need to meet this week. By asking questions, you will invite others to question what they might have considered non-negotiable. Suggest to your boss trialling a system where some days are meeting free. Some companies that have tried this have found that the desk-based chats that take place on those days often accomplish the same objectives as meeting slots, but in a more dynamic and energy-filled way. Suggest taking the marshmallow challenge with your team and then leading a discussion about what can be learned from it. Reminder, 
You have 18 minutes to construct the tallest freestanding structure possible out of 20 pieces of dry spaghetti, a metre of sticky tape, a metre of string and one marshmallow. At the end of the exercise, the marshmallow must sit at the top of the construction. What did you learn about decision making in your team? I'm so grateful to Penguin Random House and Fergus Edmondson in particular for sorting the audio out for today. Feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter. And if you sign up this week on the website, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, uh, a newsletter is going to be going out at the weekend, which is, is sort of a collection of the best articles, the best things I've seen. And uh, over the course of the next few months, there'll be, there'll be a whole load of, of free lessons and things. I'm Bruce Aisley. See you next time. 